Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As it's over two years since we launched FuturePod, we thought it would be interesting to check in with our previous guests and see how their work and their thinking may have changed since we last spoke. So we have created a new FuturePod series called The Reinterviews. Today we are re-interviewing Michael McCallum. Michael is a futures architect. We originally interviewed Michael in Podcast 7, A Macro Historian's Design for Better Futures. In that podcast, among many things, Michael explained that our task is to understand our past and current habits and patterns of understanding and to create radically new narratives about ourselves and our futures. It's a deep and stimulating conversation. Welcome back to FuturePod, Michael. Uh, Thank you, Peter. So what new things have you learnt since we last spoke and what are you working on now? Well, let me let me start with the, the learnings and then I'll try and anchor them if I could in some of the things I'm now doing. I'm really not going to traverse in this conversation some of the obvious and enormous changes which uh, confront modern society. Uh, they're all very evident. Mm. And it seems to me that we are in a time of, we're in a time of enormous transition. And the problem is we don't know to what. (laughs) We just know that we are in this space of transition. And there are a number of things. And one of the the key things that comes out of that, that knowing, is what a guy called John Key has called radical uncertainty. So that is, in fact, that all of the models, all the ways we thought, all of the frames that were sitting in front of us now are, if you like, uh, undermined almost like sand and water is by an earthquake. Mm. It turns into what's called liquefaction. And so the question is, in this uncertainty, how do we make sense of it? Mm. Where Where do we pull things? Where do they come from? So in my work, which really has, I think, been enriched by this work in macro history, there are three things that I think are very useful. The first one is to actually... Try and understand in a more complete way the nature of the system dynamics that we need to attend to, because it's not it's not the evidence and the effects that we need to look at. It is, in fact, the social arrangements and institutional systems um, that sit behind them, the deep worldviews, and the if you like, the mythologies and the metaphors and all the rest of it sit behind that. And what's interesting to me is not any of those things, but how one of those in its relation to the next one affects it. So we know, for example, if you have a classroom and you have children sitting in a row and a teacher standing at the front, that that is a particular arrangement of education that without knowing anything else, produces a certain kind of effect. Mm. So it's the relationship between the arrangement and the effect that interests me. It's this between space that I think is important, not the bits themselves. 
So when I look at all of the you know work on systems dynamics, the, you know, the causal load analysis of Sahel and many others, what I see is, uh, and this is not a disrespect, that th- there is a lack of richness if we don't pay attention to the relational dynamics. And it's the relational dynamics and understanding those that all of a sudden we can go, my God, the reason why that classroom that I just spoke of was set up the way that it was, was actually to teach children how to work in factories. That's how it started. Yep. And then you go, is that the kind of education we really, really want? And you can start to go right back to it. It's a relational thing there. And, of course, you know, we keep talking about quality education, you know, as being something that everybody needs. And we never question the fundamental ideas that sit in there. So I have been spending a lot of time thinking about where and how you need to intervene in systems to create the dynamics and effects that you want. And, of course, what we see far too often is that most of the interventions uh, are inside the system. They don't change them at all. Because my view is that we can't transition to anything different unless we understand them. And by the way, having said that, human systems are different in their design and construction than natural systems. Uh, Natural systems have relationships and arrangements, uh, uh, some of which are evidence to to us and some of which are not. Uh, And we don't know actually what some of those are. So that brings me, I think, to my second point, and that is to draw on the work of Graham Harmon and Timothy Morton around what's called object-oriented ontology. And so what that's starting to say is, in fact, when we start to look at these constructs, these human systems that we've got, when they get very complicated, even complex, and especially when they start to interact with other systems, and by the way, COVID is a classic example, what we can start to do then is actually look at what the... We can only ever see what's right in front of us. And that, I think, is something that we really need to uh, pay attention to because we must accept that we don't actually know everything about the systems that we are trying to intervene with. So I think we need a kind of knowledge humility that up until now we have never had when we think about things. So we can only see local effects. We can never be sure that what we are actually doing will actually ever work. And we need to think about ourselves, therefore, in a different relation to the things around us. As one of my good friends said, to be more humble about the sort of knowledge that we have. And I think that this is a very this is a very important difference to a world, a particular Western world, that was brought up thinking about people, organizations, whatever, as a kind of a self and an other as a fundamental unit of analysis. Uh, and by the way, I think that most futures uh, suffers from that self-other thing as well. So for me, trying to see this different way of being in the world has been important to the work and has uncovered, I think, some really interesting system intervention points. And the third thing that's really kind of meshed into my work that I think is pretty useful is, I think, Zia Sardar's work 
you know, around accepting that the world is forevermore, uh, if it has never been the case, is you know uncertain, complex, contradictory, mm-hmm. uh, and dynamic. And I think there is a lot in that, and that's a framing that again formulaic approaches to futures, I think, finds very, very challenging. So I'm sort of sitting in that space, and all I can work out in that space is two things. One, it's pretty useful to try and create a shared map of what we think that looks like. And two, to then explore quite radical ways of thinking about where and how we might act to transform systems before we bet, if you like, the whole house on the system change that we're proposing. So this is a quite a large reorientation. So for, so for me, I guess in summary, it's about sense-making. How do I make sense of what's here? How do I understand and the people I'm working with where to intervene in systems? How do we do it in a way which recognises that we won't know enough ever to actually be sure that what we're doing is the right thing. And let me give you a quick for instance here. You know, right now the world is working on vaccines and containing the virus. But actually we have no idea what the world of the virus is doing itself. You know, what other viruses is it getting interested in? How is it mutating? Where will it go eventually? You know, we, we just haven't got a clue. And we have to accept that. So we might declare war on it, but the question is, what is it we're declaring war on? So that's, I think, a really good example of saying, yes, we need to understand how we can work with COVID, but we also need to accept there's a high level of uncertainty in there and we can never, ever really, really know. So that, I, I think, Peter, is where my work has gone to. Now, let me just say, well... So what do you do about it? You know, how do you actually take that kind of work and, and translate that into some sort of reality? So I've had a couple of very interesting projects uh, recently, uh, one I've just finished and one I'm about to start. And the first one was working with the United Nations Development Program in Mongolia to look at uh, the Mongolian uh, systems and you know, where they might go. And what we did there was, and we had a lot of Mongolians involved, and we did the whole thing over Zoom in two languages, which was pretty interesting, is we created a map of where we thought Mongolia was. And then I asked uh, the people there, I said, well, so what? So what does this mean to you? And what they came up with was stunning. They said, now we think about it, all that COVID has done is made all the systems in Mongolia worse than they were before. But we now realise they actually weren't working very well in the first place. So I went, oh, good. So what does that mean? What does a transformational journey look like? And how would you go about doing it? I mean, it's a really simple question, but it's very, very difficult. And so then over the course of a few months, we had this structured conversation around how we might explore what could be possible and how it might happen. And we built a range of uh, non-traditional interventions because for some of them, they just don't even know how to start. So, for example, 
In Mongolia, they have uh, 2.7 degrees of climate change already. They've lost 30% of their glaciers and they'll lose another 30%. 80% of the grasslands are degraded. They've got five times as many stock as they should. Problem. They don't want to talk about it. They don't even know how to talk about it. So when we looked at that particular thing, we had to say, how do you build an intervention where the society, the policymakers, and everybody else start the conversation? How do you even have a conversation about something you don't want to talk about? That was really, and you can see that those elements I was talking about just before start to come into those very practical examples. The second one I've been working on, which I've just started uh, with a colleague, uh, another Australian who's now based in uh, Leishan in in China, uh, John Kodowski, is looking at a completely different future for tourism. So if you look at the global tourist model, particularly in those places where there is no domestic tourist market, how do you build tourism? You know, will families in a world of COVID ever want to travel somewhere again where they can't be guaranteed they're completely safe? How would you know what to do? Um, And so we're doing a little piece of work at the moment with the Thai government. And what we've uh, discovered, in fact, is that the current system of tourism is based on three ideas. It doesn't cost very much. We get as many people as we possibly can to one place at one time. And then we extract as much value as we can from that experience. So, for example, in Bali, 75% of all the money that is spent onshore in Bali is sent elsewhere to large hotels, whatever. Now, as these systems have collapsed, the question is, how could you build a system which is different from that, where the benefits are quite different from that? So how could you build a system which gives more benefit to the community. How could you build a system that actually means that the environment actually restores itself as part of the process rather than gets trashed? How could you build a system which, in fact, enhances the culture rather than destroys it? How could you build a system that, in fact, has appropriate infrastructure as part of the experience rather than something that the locals have to pay for. And so we've called this sustainable benefits tourism. So there need to be lots of benefits to lots of both human and non-human actors. And then, of course, the question is, well, how do you start to change the system dynamics? And how do you do it in a way whereby instead of having the certainty that there are going to be 20 planes every day with X number of people in it, you are coping with radical uncertainty. So some weeks you might have quite a lot of people and something will happen and then it'll all fall down again. Yep. So that's sort of how, how we're playing in that space. And that work's just starting. We've created some frames and some approaches, again, reflecting this interest in um, system dynamics. And in a way, it doesn't talk about futures in the way that we've traditionally talked about it. No. But it's talking about transitions to somewhere else. Yep. So it's very much, if you like, a sort of an extended now thing. And it's not reliant on, if you like, sort of very scientific inquiry into whatever particular futures field we have. And one of the things that, 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 that comes in here 
and it's about you know this changing this kind of whole philosophical approach is because so much of my work has been in non-Western societies, I've started to realise, in fact, that we need to apply these ideas and, th- and, and ways of thinking in ways that sit within the culture, that are culturally appropriate. So this is not ethno-futures or whatever that thing is called at the moment, which is we must pay attention to it. It's really around this whole idea of taking these ideas, making sure that they sit within the culture and then working inside that culture to deliver what, what's required. So, for example, in Thailand, you know, it, it's almost pointless talking about futures because you know, they're mostly Buddhists and Buddhists just say the future is the result of what you've done. So, you know, don't worry. So, that, so I guess that's kind of where uh, things have come. So for me, it's been a, a pooling of many more ideas of trying to move away from the overwhelming dominance of the kind of scientific, measurement-focused, individualist-centric, money-is-everything approach that dominates the Western world and trying to see possibility beyond that. It seems that what you're suggesting as processes of sense-making and dialogue and thinking through radical uncertainty would require, if I use the word leadership, it's not that there need to be leaders leading it, but there needs to be enough leadership support present to allow such a process to happen. Is that a fair comment? Yes. Yes, yes, it is. The, the issue now for leaders is that they hate instinctively many of the things I'm talking about, uncertainty, complexity, contradiction. They hate that stuff because our leadership models have been all predicated on, I will give you certainty. That's obviously the attraction, the rise of the strong man, and they're mostly men, the strong man model of um, you know, government. The big challenge for leaders now is to say, how do I have systems sitting alongside my conventional narrative that help me build options should that not happen? So if you know, if the Thai government's investment in Phuket coming back to where it was doesn't work, as a leader, I need to have options because otherwise I will have been seen to fail. So I think there is a different, you know, Peter, I think you're spot on. I think there is a message to leaders that if the world is much, much more uncertain than you've ever had seen it before, the only certainty you can have is that you have options when whatever way you've proposed doesn't work. So how do you build those options? How do you build options that, in fact, allow you to go somewhere else? And, of course, right now, that kind of message is, you know, has a, a subtlety to it and a nuance that you know, is really divorced from the current models. If somebody was interested in suggesting to either an organisation or a group to, to entertain this way of interrogating uncertainty and sitting with it, I'm not after a checklist and I'm not after, you know, the five things you've got to have, but are there, are there things that you think suggest that there 
exist the capacity for people to support this? I think so. And one of the things that I always do in the work I'm doing is to say, I understand why you would try and, in fact, put back what was there. I understand why you want to do that. But if that doesn't work, what would you then do? So we're introducing a, a space between, if you like, what I want to do and the solution. We're introducing a space in the middle of learning and thinking about what's possible. And because as soon as you start to introduce that space, you realise that our world has been obsessed with plans and projects that always start out with devising the solution before we've ever done anything. So we devise it, so we think about, you know, we have a problem. Uh, this is a solution we think it needs. So now we will gather all our resources and we'll measure the hell out of them, of course, on the way, and they have to deliver whatever that solution is. But maybe another way of looking at it is we would like our world to be different than it is now. We want a different kind of tourism model. Let's explore what kinds of solutions are possible, not just invest in one, just explore them. Think about demonstrations, where we could learn about it, how else that might happen. And then once we've explored that, if you like, a, a budget of possibilities, then we can start saying, out of all those possibilities we've investigated so far, these three look pretty good. We can start to now move on those. Now, that's a completely different way of thinking about how you transform from where you are now to the future than the traditional planning and project model. Mm. It's a challenge to the model. And there are some groups uh, globally who are working on them. I'm part of several of those. One's called the Cora Foundation because so many organisations know now in their heart of hearts they simply can't keep on doing what they're doing. You know, some of them are very large. The United Nations is one of them. Uh, you know, how does the United Nations think about being something completely different than what it is now? And, you know, and it's difficult. How does the United States think about that? Because otherwise what we're what we, what we get trapped in is we get trapped into models where, in fact, the system will only ever do what it's always done. And, uh, and you know, some of that is unwinding in front of us. You know, airline industries, whatever it might happen to be. I think you're talking about more than just contingency planning. Oh, oh yes, this is not contingency planning. This is genuinely about exploring options. So I'll go back and say it again. It's creating a new space between thinking about what the problem is and what you want to do about it and the solutions and creating a new space in the middle which says, before we invest in solutions, let's really think about what kinds of options we have in front of us, how we would learn about those, and then we invest. So it's, so it's not about contingency planning because the answer, of course, is when you start exploring what some of these options are, you actually have no idea what the answer might be. You haven't got a clue. Is it also necessary to have made deliberate attempts to have a diverse range of groups and, and narratives involved in the identification of possibilities. In other words, it's not about working with a small group of people and seeking to get diversity amongst them. It's actually about 
creating a group that is all, that starts out as diverse. That's right. that's exactly right. And Peter, you're now speaking my language. So it's stories or narratives, not solutions. You know, and so the, the dilemma that the current world finds itself in is, you know, we've come, we're in the end pages of the old book and we don't know what the next story looks like. And by the way, if we don't move very quickly, then the life systems on the planet will change the conditions for the story that humans will have. You know, the story about how nations, should they be important, relate to each other is changing in front of our eyes. The story about how humans use energy, you know, is changing in front of us. Probably even the story of what it means to be human, I think, is up for grabs at the moment. So, so you're right, it is about stories. And this option space for me is about understanding in a deeper way what are some of the interesting stories we could tell ourselves in the future as we go forward. So if I go back to that example I talked about in Mongolia, the Mongolians have no story for how to resolve that problem. There is no shared narrative among them. And it's just one of many issues that they face. But it's a significant one. And, and you know, the clock's ticking. Mm. Do you think the governance and political systems that exist, particularly in representative, representative democracy, do you think they are capable of sustaining and suspending effectively commitment to a you know, single course of action? I, look, that is such an interesting question. If we take democracy as being how the collective will of a people is both communicated and expressed. So let's boil it right down to its fundamental, you know, the demos part of that. Well, what we can see, in fact, is that the systems, that, the stories of democracy we've now got, which were developed, you know, 100, 200 years ago, and sometimes a bit longer, are not fit for purpose in the kind of world that we're in right now. So we see perversions of those stories. We see gerrymandering. We see different groups being different, given different kinds of interests. And we don't understand um, both how we need to express our, uh, our collective will together, uh, how we wish to govern ourselves. Uh, you know, and then we, we play games with, you know, is freedom more important than something else without ever thinking about what any of that means. So, so perhaps in the shambles, that is the current global democratic system. And I think that would be a very kind way of describing it. <laughs> Maybe we have to sit down and say, hang on a minute, we need to have a deeper conversation about what is this thing and why is this a way that we would want to be governed? Hmm. And how will we protect that? And of course, we haven't been doing that. We have been, you know, particularly during the COVID era, uh, happily trading off our community interest, our community rights, because we've been scared of something. Uh, and, and some of that might, you know, still has to play out. I don't think we really know. But I do know among a number of people who have thought about it that there is a growing acceptance that the story of democracy, as it has particularly been practiced since the Second World War, needs to be rethought. 
And, but of course, all the people who are involved in the current system have no interest in that mm. because they derive their power from that. So the question is, how do you then? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have that conversation. The question is, how do we find a way to do that? How do we find a story that's so compelling it will over time attract new leadership? I don't think it's a longer-term solution for some of our global challenges, but I would have imagined that decentralising both the governance and the political processes at least allows for a diversity of, or it gives the potential for different ideas to be heard. Look, I think that's right. And that's where the very interesting work, you know, around, you know, new civics, uh, you know, are coming. So, uh, you know, I'm very interested in some of the knowledge systems in the global south where, um, particularly in Latin America, mm. many uh, many Latin Americans are really, really clear that the, the public sector is so corrupt that it simply would not ever act in their interest. They're only trying to extract rent or money from them. And they're also really, really clear that, in fact, uh, with, with no regulation, uh, the private sector behave very, very badly indeed. There is a huge group of people in Latin America saying, well, you know, a pox on both your houses. Mm. We need to find ways of being in the world, living well, De Sousa Santos calls it, living well, that is not dependent on either of you. So, so you know, the work uh, of Michelle Bowens and others around uh, in the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, I think, is starting to point to that. And these are uh, something I mentioned in the last podcast, those kinds of ideas, those kinds of concepts are in a different space than both the kind of socialist and capitalist narratives that we've actually relied on in the last hundred years. They're not on the same line. They're in a completely different space. Yep. Because both of those, by definition, were set up, in fact, to uh, exploit on behalf of either the people or some individuals uh, the resources of the planet. Yes, we... We were seeing emerging, you know, what I would call, Michael, emerging civil disobedience amongst the young regarding climate and politics and representation. So, you know, the Greta Thunberg yep. process that spread around the world. Then, of course, during COVID, we had the explosion of Black Lives Matters, which was an American-located issue, but it spread around the world and happened in its own cultural form. Yep. And then on top of that, we had the racism, woke, rewriting history process as well that I think is ongoing now. I mean, do you see those those general processes that seem to be driven by people rather than institutions or individuals with agendas? Or No, they're certainly individuals with agendas, but they seem to have a degree of spontaneity and emergence do you think they are they are a process that helped the process along? Well, the person I think who probably knows more about this than anyone else is my good friend, uh, Dr. Jose Ramos, um, who wrote his PhD around the Occupy movement in the States. Um, and, and it seems to me that the issue with these, these groups is they are confronting very, very clearly systems that are not working for them or for anyone else. And they're saying, look, this is just not good enough. 
we have to transition. And in the fact that they do confront and they are putting that full stop, if you like, around certain systems and certain kinds of practices, um, I think they're wonderful. Hmm. Where I think that, in fact, they struggle is, in fact, to build these kinds of processes that I'm talking about of making sense of, well, what does a trans- you know, what's on the other side of the transformation? Hmm. So if black lives really matter and all these things are happening, you know, how do we make sure that, in fact, not, not just that those things, the practices stop, but in fact that the young, many of the young people, you know, the children of the people who are protesting have lives of real meaning and lives that really, really matter. And what does that actually look like? And, it's, and, it's lo- and, and the answer is a lot more than just pre- police brutality. Yep. It's 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 a it's a whole fullness, I and mean, because that says, well, then what sort of societies are we trying to build that will ensure that that is the case? And it can't be built on exploitative models, you know, discriminate. If you have less education in the states and you have a lower paid job, then you don't have health insurance, and therefore you die faster, and the way it goes. So you know, so Black Lives Matter. You know, there's a this is a societal change issue. Yep. Of huge scale, and I think the danger is always that we focus on the very obvious and egregious problems, but then we don't invest anything in how do we explore the spaces of what matter means in the future. I know a tiny bit about macro history in comparison to you, but one of the things that I know, if you talk about Sarkar or you talk about Haldun or even Spengler, there is within their macro-historical model, there is a process of breakdown. Yes. There, is a, there is an energetic dimension that, if you like, destroys the old and then in the space that's created, there's the possibility of the new. Yes. But there can be no guarantee that when you break something down, you will be able to produce something after. In other words, breaking down is, it seems to be a necessary but insufficient element to create the pivot towards building a better future. And, and look, look, I think there are a number of people, Peter, who are exploring that very issue and who are offering views and ways of thinking. Uh, and, and, I th- and I think particularly uh, voices that come from other ways of knowing in the world mm. than just the Western ones. But what I would say here, and this is, this is, I think, the incredible dilemma that our current society faces, is that if that period of disintegration takes too long, then what actually will happen is the life systems will deteriorate to a point of view where a number of options will simply be taken off the table. Yep. And, and therefore... The renewal piece that you talk about, the, 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 the transformation to something else, will be constrained as a result, with, with I suspect, terrible suffering attached to it. Mm. If we're taking out of aquifers, you know, groundwater that's thousands of years old, you know, we are reducing the ability of people to live in certain parts of the world, and, and so on and so forth. You know, you know, all of these things are well known. So, so I, I think that is the dilemma of the current society is, yes, we can, in fact, do these things, but the space in which we, the time in which we need to transform, 
I think is very short. Um, and I would suggest that 2050 is a complete outside date. And that is very, very scary. It really starts to give you a sense of how how difficult the, you know, the journey is that we, we now face. You know, I'm an optimist. You know, I, you know, I've seen wonderful conversations emerge as people grasp these issues and work them through. But then I, I am horrified by the, the lack of interest, the lack of caring, the, the cynicism. And that probably brings me to my last piece. Yep. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time uh, when I wrote my thesis uh, thinking about these things. And uh, I've been, uh, a number of people have been on at me to turn it into a book that would have a wider appeal than a PhD thesis. But I think my idea of the book has now morphed into producing something even simpler than what I was going to do. And that is to produce a, a book which says, in this world of competing stories, whether they are true or false, let's not worry about it, how do you know, what tools do you need to have in your head so that when you, when you read something or you listen to something, you can think for yourself about whether this is something that you, know, you, want, to, you want to keep on your side or not. Mm-hmm. I hope it would help some people spot fake news or nonsensical surveys um, or whatever it might happen to be. Or you know, competing narratives on on climate change or whatever it might happen to be. So that's the book I now need to write. It will have all of the elements that were in my thesis, but they will need to be explained in ways that people can use them. Fantastic! Look, Mike, thanks for taking some time to chat with the Future Pod community. Look, thank you, Peter. And I honestly, I am most grateful for the invitation. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, all power to your cause. It is part of the pantheon of, you know, inquiry into better narratives for the future, I think. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.